Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host Christian Ubius. And Christian, today marks the wrapping up of our Unreliable Narrators Blend of the Month. How are you feeling here on our final final day of the blend? You know, I think I did very well. I think you also did very well in picking this theme because there are so many good movies that have made use of the trope, especially recent movies, movies of the last 20, 25 years or so. So definitely some good ones to talk about. And I am excited to dive into today's movie, that being Gone Girl, David Fincher's 2014 movie, because I had never seen it before and you had, which is a marked twist from our previous episodes. I had seen The Usual Suspects, and you had not, and we had both seen Memento. And so now, I finally get to see something that you had already seen. So, were you a fan of Gone Girl, having already seen it? Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Well, you know, what were you bringing in to Gone Girl? I brought... I, I loved Gone Girl when I first saw it. I rewatched. I saw it in theaters in 2014, which I, I, I love the movie year of 2014, uh, several months ago, I showed it to my roommates. It was one of the first movies we saw as an apartment. And uh, then I loved it then. And yeah, they're absolutely no. I mean, I texted you. I still think Gone Girl is a phenomenal movie. You're you're cheating a little bit, sharing your, your review-related thoughts early in the show. But it's I don't fair, care because you've seen I want it you times. to know that whatever your thoughts are, if they are not in um, line with my thoughts, I will barrel over you. Mm, of course, <laughs> as happens regardless. But I don't think you have too much to fear, as you will find when we get to our review portion of this episode. But of course, as has been tradition for this season of Cinema Drip, we've been trying to focus a little bit more on the background for all of these movies, why we're talking about them, why they're coming up for these particular marathons. So let's do a quick rundown of the details here for Gone Girl. Like I said, 2014, directed by David Fincher, screenplay by Gillian Flynn, based on her own novel. Based on a true story. Her novel was based on the true story? Yes, her novel was based on a true story. Interesting. Look at that. I am learning already on this podcast, and I didn't look into that before. I just thought it was her book. And it stars Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike as Nick and Amy Dunn, a married couple having some problems who, unfortunately, are forced to part ways after Nick comes home from work one day to find that Amy has mysteriously disappeared. Gone Girl was a smash hit when it came out, which isn't something you can say of every two and a half hour long crime thriller, but with the movie stars it boasted and David Fincher's guiding hand definitely helped it in the box office department. Had a big $61 million budget, but it pulled in over $369 million at the global box office. Had a lot of buzz coming out of film festivals and ultimately received a lot of awards attention, especially for Rosamund Pike, who received her first and thus far only Oscar nomination for this movie. And other collaborators were nominated at other award shows along the way. Gone Girl also had a pretty warm critical response. People were big fans. Obviously, Fincher 
is a well-loved filmmaker critically as well as box office wise so gone girl is up there in terms of his popular successes yeah <laughs> i mean you you are correct i also kind of weird i i don't i i've been following fincher's work for a while now the fact that gone girl is his most it, it came back as his highest grossing at the box office it doesn't doesn't seem not right but it seems weird compared to everything else he's done it's for some reason something like the social network even girl with the dragon tattoo or alien 3 even though alien 3 not that loved maybe even fight club all these are huge names i would think that they would draw in a bigger crowd but no gone girl people flock to it at the movie theaters i think it was a perfect confluence of a popular pulpy novel being adapted for the screen plus fincher's popularity and acclaim having grown since the beginning of his career because obviously he starts off on the wrong foot with alien 3 being mangled by the studio and him getting pissed off and vowing to never work with the studio again then of course that didn't last but seven and the game and fight club he had some bigger successes in the 90s movies that worked better but were sometimes little seen or maybe only noticed by critics at the time. Fight Club, obviously, is now extraordinarily popular for a variety of different groups of people. But his critical attention and acclaim, I think, started to catch up with him, as especially after he had multiple movies get nominated for Best Picture, that being The Curious Case of Ben Button. Benjamin Button. At Benj the Button? Network. Benj Button. I, I forgot about Benj Button. <laughs> and The Social Network. And... And he finally got to Gone Girl, and that plus getting Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike to star at you know movie stars all always bring folks in. Definitely all contributed to his biggest success thus far. I have to say though, there's there, there's something else here. This marks David Fincher's break from film. That was uh, until last year. This marked a six-year hiatus for David Fincher, who would normally. I mean, at times it was like a movie one year, a movie the next year. At other times it would be the, uh, I, I, not not that long. But he took that break and in that time made Mindhunter. And kind of directed his resources to other things, which is very weird to understand. And also, uh, kind of like the last thing for me in terms of background information this is the first film in the genre of unreliable narrators where it's not the guy who's the unreliable narrator. Or at least it's not just the guy who's the unreliable narrator. It is very much centered on Rosamund Pike's Amy. And it comes from this idea that Jillian Flint had where she was sick and tired of several different women being portrayed as the motherly and affectionate figures. And with that in mind, set out to write Gone Girl, where Amy is one of the farthest things from warm and affectionate that you can find. Yeah, she. I saw an interview that she did around the time this movie came out where she was reflecting on the original writing of the book and she was almost ashamed because she felt like she i think to use her words destroyed feminism with a book on accident you know but she ultimately came 
to be more fond of her work, obviously the book was very successful. And then she wrote the screenplay for the movie. Didn't want to distance herself from the work. So I think she felt more at peace with her character there. But Amy Dunn, definitely a reaction to that motherly stereotype that you're mentioning. And in many ways kind of opens the door into more of this type of character. I, the, the, the series that comes to mind is Big Little Lies, actually, which feels tangentially related, but these suburban women doing bad things stands out to me as maybe being inspired by Gone Girl now that I have seen Gone Girl. So, Christian, is there anything else for you? I know I chose Big Little Lies as seeming related to this, but any other movie that you've seen or TV show that you've seen that feels maybe connected to Gone Girl which obviously, you know, Jillian or Gillian, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, Ms. Flynn didn't invent this type of character, but she gave it some 21st century energy, I think. And so I just want to know if there's any other characters or series or movies, anything that's coming to mind for you. Rosamund Pike's performance to a certain extent does remind me of Carrie Mulligan's performance in Promising Young Woman. And I'm only mentioning Promising Young Woman. The premise is completely different. The directorial style is completely different. But you can kind of see the influences of powerful women. Um, or not not powerful, actually. They don't necessarily have power, but strong women using their influence to fulfill an agenda. That is a good way of looking at it. And I think another aspect of Gone Girl that some have criticized and I don't know if it's my place as just a white guy but I saw some critics be a little wary of Gone Girl or at least if they're not not against it still wanting to put it in conversation with some other works or some other perspectives just because obviously an element to Gone Girl that isn't really mentioned in the film but that we can think about outside of it is race naturally Amy being an affluent white woman is what allows for the kind of the privilege and life that causes so much of the fallout that happens in the movie. And some critics would argue if you make this character another race, then it's an entirely different movie, which is a fascinating perspective. One that I obviously being white can't necessarily um, speak to too much without reading more and listening more. But I think it is an interesting take and an interesting element of Gone Girl. I'm not sure I mean, if you agree that's, or disagree. That's true but... though. That's true. She's a bored white woman. She's a bored white woman who, in in terms of being bored, decides to do something to cause excitement in her life. And the only reason she can cause this excitement is because she has all of the privilege which she holds. But that's not what this movie's about, though. This movie is about kind of her as a tour de force. Her as this massive hurricane that will barrel anything in its path in order to get what she wants. Now, you give this to a different race, keep it a woman, and it will exist differently, sure. But in all cases, it will still showcase the woman at the center as the powerful entity that she can be. So, I... Like, I see where the this criticism is coming from, and I choose to reject it. Well, <laughs> I don't think you have to reject it. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> I do. I've, because I... it's... 
I, it's like, I get it, but the issue isn't this movie. It's something to keep in mind and to understand in the discourse just of all of society and culture. And it's reflective in what Amy can do. But this movie is not the cause of that. Well, right. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just saying that that critical perspective was interesting to me because I didn't even think about it. And reading it after the fact was helpful in thinking why some folks out there don't like this movie or why maybe they they see more even see more in it than i than people I just need something to complain about look <laughs> i will reiterate you you know wesley morris right the film critic i'm a big fan of wesley morris exactly one of my favorite things he ever said i knew we were crazy when we started to complain about la la land look <laughs> listen he and also wesley morris does not like gone girl all due respect wesley morris <laughs> i i i look I don't know. I, I think that there are genuine things that if you dislike about this movie, I will accept. I don't think that has to be one of them. I didn't even necessarily bring it up as a reason to like or dislike. I think it's just a critical perspective that adds depth to Gone Girl. And it can enrich, enrich the experience as you think about that aspect of it partially because it's not really foregrounded in the movie that not much is made of it there aren't many significant characters of color and the ones that are there you know they're they're just they're normal people whatever you want to say uh they're just they're just serving the plot so i just thought it was an interesting perspective because it's not something i considered while i was watching the movie but i don't mean to argue about it (laughs) because i'm not particularly (laughs) informed any other significant pieces of background that you wanted to mention before we dive into my new favorite part of the show, fun facts. I know. I think that we should just dive into fun facts. So Christian, I have the first one for you today and I will pose it in the form of a question. So David Fincher had Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do the score for this movie. They're frequent collaborators of his and he gave them some tracks to run on because he heard something that he liked at a particular location, and he wanted it to inspire the same feelings for this movie. So do you know where he was when he got an idea for the score to this movie? Was it an office where they look at those things that help you crunch food so that you can digest it? What? <laughs> what? What is that? Let's just say that you have several of them. You have baby ones that fall out. You have wise ones. They masticate. I'm not sure what you're getting at. I'm also a person. Dentist's office. Oh, there you go. There we go. Uh, very close. He was at a chiropractor. He's really? at a chiropractor. I, it, I, I was. I really thought it was a dentist's office. Okay, I did not know it was a chiropractor. Yeah, we can get into the music a little bit later, but he heard the attempt at soothing music being played at this chiropractor's office to create that nice medical environment, but he actually felt that. It wasn't the most calm-inducing music, and it inspired him to have the similar style of music that is attempting to bring in calm, but is actually a little bit unsettling or even anxiety-inducing. And that ins- that's the emotion that inspired the score for Fincher and then Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. Nice. So, <laughs> did you know that Ben Affleck was required to wear a Yankees cap in 
an airport scene, I'm pretty sure. But because, as a Bostonian, he was such a diehard Red Sox fan, he refused to wear it. My guy. He's rocking a Mets hat in that scene. <laughs> Look at that. Even David Fincher will relent on some of the details that are important to him sometimes, if it means <laughs> helping a, a sports fan <laughs> not, not feel like he's betraying his team. Next for me, I am not sure if you noticed this, but Ben Affleck's build fluctuates a couple times depending on the scenes in the movie. And that's because he had accepted the role for Batman, which eventually came out after this movie. A couple years later, Batman v Superman was 2016. This was 2014. And so he had started the workout getting fit process while he was still filming this movie. So apparently if you look closely or if you are just a fan of, of looking at Ben Affleck, you can tell there are some scenes where he's a little pudgier and normal looking and some scenes where he's a little more jacked because he was on his way to being Bruce Wayne. <laughs> uh, okay. So David Fincher caught Rosamund Pike using her phone uh, during on set one day and so what he did was he texted her a stern-faced selfie to get her to stop using it <laughs> oh my gosh i love it <laughs> david fincher pulling the the crotchety professor move <laughs> um last last f- fact for me here uh did you know this is the first time that ben affleck appeared fully nude on screen um I, I did not, but I also wasn't diving hard into previous <laughs> Ben Affleck takes of nudity. Don't worry, I was just reading IMDb fun facts, but yes, this was the first time he appeared full frontally nude on screen. So good on you, Ben Affleck. Thanks for sharing your, your body with the world. <laughs> okay. Anything else, Christian? Any last fun facts for you? Yeah, I'll do one last one. So Ben Affleck really, really wanted to work with David Fincher that he bet someone uh, <laughs> he bet someone that he could change one of the lens settings on a camera a very small amount and Fincher wouldn't notice. Fincher did and he lost the bet. Oh, knowing David Fincher, how, how can you think he wouldn't notice the lens changing even slightly? Come on, Ben, you're a director too. You know what it's like. Now is the time, Christian. Now... We must dive in to our full review of Gone Girl. Before, of course, we get to our awards for this unreliable narrator's blend of the month. But Christian, as you've shared, this is a movie you've loved. You've seen it multiple times now. You're a big fan. And I got to watch it for the first time. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table here and tell you that I was a huge fan as well. I love a lot of David Fincher's movies. While I haven't seen them all... I have never been let down by him, and the most muted response I had to a movie of his was Mank, which I still was a fan of. I really love his work, and I find that his technical mastery and wizardry here combines really well with the source material, and everything about this movie is, every, or I should say every collaborator in this movie is operating at the top of their game. And so, Christian, just to kick off our discussion here, knowing that you already love this movie, and now that I can say I love it as well, what aspect of the filmmaking here is, par- is so particularly striking to you? And just to give a couple options here, is it Fincher's direction? Is it Flynn's screenplay? Is it the casting or the performances, the editing even, the music, the cinematography, anything? What aspect of this movie stands out to you as one of the major reasons motivating your love for this movie? 
it has to be the twist. It has to be the twist that happens around, and I, and I, and I timed it. It happens around an hour and six minutes into the movie. This is a around two and a half hour movie, two hours and 20 or so minutes. One hour and six minutes in, we get to see what it is that caused Amy's disappearance. And then the way that we expertly weave between Nick's story and Amy's story and the use of flashbacks, this screenplay is phenomenal. This screenplay is absolutely phenomenal. At no point are you confused. Like even in Memento, and I love Memento, I got confused trying to figure out what's going to happen next. At all times in Gone Girl, I'm not confused. Maybe there's stuff that I don't know, but I'm not puzzled by it. It was uh, such a beautiful descent into the chaotic and uh, perverted lives of these this messed up couple. With Rosamund Pike giving one of the great performances. So that that's where I'm going with this. It, it, it also looks, I, I'm giving so many different things. If I have to settle on one, it's the reveal and it's the screenplay. If I can give another one, it's Rosamund Pike's performance as AB. And finally, bro, this movie looks beautiful. It's shot on digital, but it looks fantastic. It's so smooth and also kind of eerily clean, eerily spotless. And man, it's all working together. I love this movie. I think the screenplay will be a good starting off point because I agree it is excellently done. Always fun to get someone who writes the source material to then write the adaptation. And it's interesting to see what they change, what they don't change, how they adapt their own work. And I haven't read Gone Girl, the novel, so I can't speak too much to the adaptation process, but I think whatever she had to leave out Jillian Flynn captured the best of her novel and provided it to David Fincher, one of the great adapters of our time in terms of source material becoming bangers of movies. And it is so, so well done. Obviously, it starts with her screenplay. It starts with her book. But this is another really excellent director and writer pairing. I was really a big fan of her screenplay as well. And I think that maybe the most Iconic. I don't know if there's anything that's iconic about Gone Girl just yet, but that twist that you're talking about happens so early in the movie. And I told you I hadn't seen Gone Girl before, but I knew that there's something, there's some kind of a twist element with Amy. I knew that it wasn't like she disappears and they find her in the end. I knew that she was sort of involved. That's kind of the talk I had heard based on listening to podcasts about Fincher or reading articles or whatever. But I didn't know what happened so early and that we had a full 90 minutes of movie left after that. And we got to see part of her journey in trying to screw over her husband. And we got to see what she goes through and see what she survives. And it makes this movie so much more fascinating. Should we give the uh, synopsis? I don't think we have yet. I mentioned it briefly earlier on, but uh, we can if that if you think that would be helpful in discussing the even discussing the writing. Well, just, well, everyone, you should know that this is a spoiler-filled territory. And going into it, yes, Ben Affleck's Nick comes home, and Rosamund Pike's Amy is missing. And as an investigation 
begins into her disappearance, all eyes seem to turn to Nick. I'm not gonna lie. My own eyes were like, Frick, did Ben Affleck kill this woman? Uh, we find out very soon, though. Amy staged the whole thing to get back at her husband for cheating on her with a younger woman. Man, this it it this is it's wild. And it's <laughs> it's not wild because she retaliates against her cheating husband because that is a tale as old as time. But the lengths that she goes to and this plays out in a for me probably the most rewatchable scene in the movie if I were to go back and watch something from it just an absolutely masterful work of writing a voiceover done well which is hard to do performance from Rosamund Pike and even edited together this mo- um, montage where she walks basically walks us through how she does it because throughout she's writing these journal entries where she's sharing these horrible things that Nick is doing he's throwing her a against the wall he's lying to her she's so afraid of him and of course we then get this montage where it's pretty much for us it's her monologue it's her voiceover she's not writing anymore she's not talking to anyone and she's explaining everything that she did to near flawlessly fake her own kidnapping and possible death and that sequence is so well done the ways that it goes from moment to moment capturing all these little itty bitty things that she did over the ensuing months to set this up. And then just the thrill that she has of escaping and totally leaving Nick up the river without a paddle. Uh, just so good. And so well done on, on all counts. I mean, yes, she is, she is a shining star. <laughs> She's very much a shining star of all of this going off of that though. Who were you rooting for? Who is that rooting for? Well, that's, again, part of the fun of Gone Girl, is that who you root for changes throughout the movie. Because and no matter first, who you root for, you're losing. Right. And that is that is too true. And I think one of the messages, if this movie can have a message, or at least one of the themes of the, of the story, but why i think this was a good pick for unreliable narrators it was your recommendation and i still had the ultimate curating choice but i'm so glad we chose it is that there are kind of two unreliable narrators because at the beginning we are suffering through amy's unreliable narration via the diary but we're also seeing the ways that nick is not being honest or forthright and it's not necessarily narration because he's engaged in conversations it's not his voiceover he's not talking to us as the audience and it's not like the kaiser soze situation in the usual suspects where that character is monologuing about the story but he is unreliably sharing the details of his life we don't find out that he's cheating on amy until what probably 45 or so minutes into the movie we don't find out a lot of their conversations from his vantage point because he's not forthright with the police until later on after we hear Amy's fake side of the story. And so having the two unreliable narrators keeps you engaged and fascinated and wondering what is going on. And it makes it so hard to pick someone to root for (laughs) because you want to root first for Amy because you're like, oh my gosh, this poor woman, she was so full of life. What happened to her? <laughs> and you realize that she was basically making that person up 
which again a theme of this movie and so you start to root for nick while also realizing that then oh you're rooting for a guy who was cheating on his wife with one of his 20 year old students and dragged her to his hometown and then kind of left her on her lonesome and was more engaged with his friends and family than he was with her so i don't even know at times who i was rooting for you know what's interesting to me is that there are certain amy keeps a diary that she makes up about all of the things that she lived through with nick in order to leave for the police to find and suspect him to be a criminal there are a couple of sequences there where she writes that nick pushed her threatened her life and we think that because of all her lies or her deception more so that is made up near the end of the movie you see nick in a very real scene push her against the wall because of what she's done and how she's threatening to destroy his life if he leaves her that in juxtaposition with that diary makes me question whether anything that amy put in that diary is actually false was nick actually thinking about pushing his wife or did menace his wife and physically abuse her and that spurred her on now the, the movie is kind of more on nick's side than anything else in terms of moralness in terms of strength nick is the weaker individual <laughs> but it's that that's kind of fascinating where i can't honestly say that ben affleck's nick was a good husband because i mean he wasn't first of all for the infidelity <laughs> he <was> not, yeah <laughs> that's <sec> just that <laughs> it's it's just that and second of all for did did you hurt her nick did you actually hurt her right these these two people are terrible people <laughs> and Obviously, a person who cheats on their spouse, especially under the circumstances, with younger person who was a student in one of his classes, after he forced her to move across the country from, or at least from New York to Missouri, and then left his wife alone. Just a, a horrible thing to do to a spouse. But obviously, while Amy was certainly entitled to getting out of that relationship, if she if she felt that she needed to, as opposed to trying to help fix it. Her actions and reactions are also a little bit insane. Of course, planning your own fake kidnapping and possible murder is unbelievably crazy. And she, as we know, not that we've gone full spoilers, literally kills a person in order to make it back to Nick and then lies about why she killed that guy too. And they are such fascinating characters and i really love the casting choices as well as you said rosamund pike giving a great performance well worthy of her awards attention but i think this is some of the best stuff that ben affleck has ever done either i mean he's made a lot of good movies he's made some not so good movies of the movies of his that i've seen you love him in goodwill hunting you love him in small roles in movies like Dazed and Confused near the beginning of his career. But this is maybe the best he's ever been, fully embodying this 
crappy dude <laughs> who is nonetheless forced to earn our sympathy because we start to feel bad for him once we realize the lengths that Amy went to to screw him over and not just get out not just end their marriage and walking that line is challenging because again not a good person but I think Affleck is more than up to the task and I, I really loved his performance here you know what else though this movie's kind of funny like in so many instances I found myself laughing and I'm gonna read two quotes from this movie they're both from the same scene okay and this first one's from Amy I killed for you. Who else can say that? You think you'd be happy with a nice Midwestern girl? No way, baby. I'm it. And I'm like, what is going on? Given the context of that scene, I'm surprised that you said you laughed at that. Because yeah, I was did, unsettled by that. When she says, no way, baby, you didn't chuckle? No Okay. Keep in mind, for those of you listening along, Nick has just pushed her and banged her head against the wall. There's, they are angrily arguing. The word, the C word is being thrown around a bunch of times as they're describing each other. Aren't and... there reporters also in like the in, in the first floor of that <laughs> they're, house? They're waiting to go on this interview where they're going to lie to the world and, and talk about how they're all excited about the new baby they're having. And no, I, just... but I thought she actually was pregnant, though. I thought that she injected his semen into herself she did she was okay. pregnant <laughs> i meant that they're gonna lie about their happiness because nick of course <laughs> is practicing he's practicing his speech in the mirror that he's gonna call her out on television without letting her know and that whole scene is so dark it's it's almost the last scene of the movie we get their interview after which is brief and then a, a the final shot which i definitely want to talk about and I don't. I didn't think I found anything funny. It was just depressing to realize that these two people were stuck with each other. One functioning as the warden, <laughs> and one as the prisoner. And of course, a prisoner being punished for his crimes, not just someone trapped in a in a bad relationship. He had the tables turned on him. Now let's 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 keep going with the second quote, though, Scott. Uh, this yes. one has to make you laugh. Okay. You're delusional. I mean, you're insane. Why would you even want this? Yes, I loved you. And then all we did was resent each other, try to control each other. We caused each other pain. To which Amy responds, that's marriage. Again. That's hilarious. Not very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it hits different because you actually are married. I, I am actually married. And I think Gone Girl is a fascinating marriage movie. It is a very, very dark romance in a way. It is not a movie about two people falling Top back in love. Top five marriage movies for sure, though. <laughs> but a, a horrible, horrible glimpse at marriage. And look, I've been married for a year and a half. I am not an expert on the subject. I can tell you that I am not always good at being married because I can be selfish. And thankfully, my selfishness is played out in not doing the dishes or playing more video games instead of engaging with my wife when she needs someone to be her friend so i'm glad that i'm not as bad as these people but (laughs) it's the kind of movie where you could safely turn to your if you were single you could safely turn to your friends and say yeah i got it good i'm good right now (laughs) it's not a glowing picture of a marriage and it's such a dark dark take on even what marriage is because it's not just these two people who don't get along it's that that quote that you mentioned is is thematic it's an undergirding of the movie of what is marriage except two people spending their entire lives faking 
for each other, trying to be these other alternative versions of themselves to keep the other person around, whether that is to stay safe, stay cared for, stay well considered by society, whatever. That's what marriage is, according to Gone Girl. And I would disagree with that take on marriage, but it's a fascinating theme and a fascinating point to consider and very much in line with David Fincher's misanthropic tendencies that he has demonstrated throughout his career. Let's go on to, you said you wanted to talk about the last shot. So let's do the last shot before moving on to our awards. Oh, I would love to. So there is so much that's great about this movie. I I mean, we could probably talk for another hour at this point about it, and we don't have that kind of time. But one specific aspect of this movie that makes it so good and, and wraps up what is so good about it is, that, is the beginning and ending shots. At the beginning, we see Amy lying on Nick, and she's lying on him and then turns to look at him as Nick is... You know, stroking her hair lovingly and and yet he's offering this voiceover about how he imagines hurting her and spilling her brains all over the place asking questions like who are we what have we done to each other you know about marriage and then we get the rest of the movie and at the end we have a recurrence of that shot where it's the same framing she just has the haircut that she gets from the beginning to the end of the movie and the way that she looks at him changes as he strokes her hair and asks the same questions. But of course, because we've seen everything that Amy has done and said over the preceding two and a half hours, it is far more unsettling. These questions of who are we and what have we done to each other aren't just curious and mysterious as, as we are getting into the movie, but are reflective and heartbreaking as you consider the situation these two have found themselves in and the look on Rosamund Pike's face is icy and almost evil the way that she is staring at him knowing that she won and so golly the beginning and the ending shots are just so brilliant and almost a perfect encapsulation of the movie just in those two moments and I wanted to know if you had anything else you wanted to add I know I just sort of monologued about them but I think they're brilliant and I wanted to know what you thought What gets me about that is the stroking motion, which can be seen as loving. Knowing the context can be almost condescending, like a there, there type of gesture. We are, uh, that shot is not loving at all, just like you said. And it's this parasitic relationship where... Amy isn't going away and Nick realizes he needs to understand that it it is Stockholm Syndrome. He has to live with her and if we're to speculate about their future I think they end up together for the long haul and that's not okay. Fun to watch but not okay. Uh, most definitely. <laughs> Something I wanted to mention on last week's episode and it just I totally forgot, but I actually saw Memento and I promise this will connect. I saw Memento in a college class. And one thing that my professor pointed out at the time is she said, 
all great movies and all might be too big of a word, but all great movies tell you exactly what they're about in the first five minutes. You can know it's a great movie if you're watching it and there's this thesis statement that the rest of the movie backs up. And in Memento, obviously it's Leonard shaking the Polaroid as it goes from fully visible to invisible. And that's the only scene that's actually in reverse uh, as opposed to just reverse chronology. And the point being that that movie we have this clear picture, and as he shakes it, it gets less and less clear, which is our experience with Memento. The more we learn, the less we know until the final twist. And that same principle applies to Gone Girl, in my opinion. We get everything we need to know about their relationship in these opening and closing shots. And, of course, there is a lot of necessary context to understanding these two and their relationship, what Fincher and Flynn are trying to say about the worst parts of marriage and uh, and the other things, aspects of society they critique. But again, you can know a great movie sometimes from the opening shot and Gone Girl announces itself as a great movie at the very beginning. Christian, any final thoughts on Gone Girl? Uh, we didn't even get to talk about the fantastic supporting cast, including Neil Patrick Harris as evil Barney Stinson, basically, and Tyler Perry as Tanner Bolt the attorney for men accused of killing their husbands. There's uh, just a brilliant cast. It's up and down. Uh, such good work there from all involved. And just wanted to know if you had any, any, any final thoughts before we move on. No real final thoughts. I just, honestly, this movie is spectacular. Indeed it is. And perhaps we'll see more of it as we move on to our awards for the unreliable narrator blend of the month. Three really enjoyable movies, two that I'm glad to have rewatched, and one that I am very glad to have seen for the first time. Tried to mix up the categories for you, Christian. I know we often fall back on best picture, best actor, some variation on best screenplay or something like that. So try to get a little more funky with it. We'll still do best picture, of course, but in honor of the marathon, our first award is going to be for best unreliable narrator or perhaps best use of the trope, however you wanted to say it. So the nominees are, I know we don't always say it out loud, but it would probably help for this discussion. So the nominees are uh, Verbal Kint slash Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects, Leonard in his Interrograde Amnesia in Memento, and then Amy and her fake journal in Gone Girl, as well as arguably Nick and his lack of forthrightness with the police. Okay, this is kind of tough because in terms of performance, I think it's Rosamund Pike. In terms of who was the most unreliable, it almost has to go to Leonard because he's so unreliable, he, like, messes with himself. So this isn't best performance, and because this isn't best performance, I will go with Lenny from Memento. I am with you on that. I think because the narrator is so unreliable, he deludes himself. <laughs> and <laughs> I, we have three very different takes on this unreliable narrator trope. Obviously, in The Usual Suspects, he's lying to a police officer. In Gone Girl, she is lying to the world. <laughs> That's her story becomes famous. And she's lying to, to the community and the media and her husband. But I think Leonard managing to lie to himself to such a degree that he in intentionally forces himself to do heinous 
to commit heinous crimes is such a fascinating twist on the formula and provides some some good thematic thoughts on, on memory and such. And so I'm with you on that one. I think my favorite was also Memento. So similarly related, after Memento sweeps the first round from the two of us, we have Best Plot Twist. You may not have liked the narrator, but the twist could still be satisfying. So again, nominees are Verbal, turns out to be Kaiser Soze, in The Usual Suspects, that Leonard has intentionally deluded himself as the storylines converge in Memento, and that he has already killed John G. Or the reveal that Amy planned her and faked her own kidnapping and murder in Gone Girl. Okay, best best plot twist is weird. Because if we're talking about most unexpected, I feel like the Kaiser Sose one and how he was looking at the wall behind is one of the most unexpected things. But if we're talking about best because of the meticulousness of her planning, I will go with Gone Girl's twist. I like it. The meticulousness. That's also just a good word. Thank you for using it, Christian. This is a hard one for me to think about as well, partially because I feel very similarly about all three of these movies um, in that I, I like them all very much. I'm a big fan of all of them. And a lot of that is built on the strength of the plot twists. They make these movies famous. They help them come together. And it was hard to think about my favorite I think, again, I had to leave The Usual Suspects out because it's not necessarily a plot twist that keeps on giving. Once you know it, it changes how you watch the movie. Although, as we talked about, some consider that to be the best plot twist of all time. And I really, really love the scene in Gone Girl where it's announced that the plot has twisted. But I think I'm actually going to go again with Memento. Just because that will change the way you watch the movie Yes, but it also can be a gift that keeps on giving. And when you watch it over and over again, you're still fascinated by the structure and the way that it all comes together is still so brilliantly written and fascinating to watch. And it, the whole movie is barreling towards this twist where the, the storylines are going to converge in the middle. And I think because of that element of the writing and the structure too, it just, it just works for me every time. So I'm going to go with Memento once again. So a bit of a split there, but now of course it's time for best picture. Again, The Usual Suspects, Memento, and Gone Girl. Gone Girl. <laughs> Christian, we are in agreement. Is that a plot twist for you? Huh? Did I twist the plot? I, having seen this only for the first time, might be speaking a little too, too abruptly here, but I really like The Usual Suspects. I love Memento. But again, Memento is not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. And of course, Gone Girl's not my favorite Fincher movie yet, but maybe it might be one day. But I think just the absolute symphony of technical wizardry and mastery from all involved, we didn't even get to talk about everyone, plus the awesome Affleck and Pike performances combined with... I don't even know what else. I already mentioned the technical wizardry and the performances, but just everything about Gone Girl is is almost perfection. And I was a huge, huge fan of it. And I'm so glad I finally watched it. So I'm with you. Gone Girl for Best Picture. Freaking love it. Any final thoughts on this month before we wrap up the show here, Christian? No. 
not on this month. It was interesting. I like this. I like your curation, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for a good topic. And speaking of topics and curation, we have to announce what's coming next. There will be no recommendations episode next week because we are just... Say it ain't so. I know. Because we're just diving headfirst into our April blend of the month. And that's partially because we'll be doing an Oscars-related show at the end of the month that'll take the place of our recommendations episode. So now that Christian gave me a topic and I curated, I have a topic for Christian and he will curate. And that topic is 2010's Best Picture Winners in honor of the Oscars. Christian, how are you feeling about that? How are you feeling about that topic? I'm feeling very solid. I'm feeling very, very solid. Based on the few that you've thrown out for us to watch and discuss on future episodes, I also am looking forward to it. I think you're going to pick some winners from that batch. I know it's only 10 options, but there's some good ones in there, and I'm excited to talk more about them. So we'll be starting out by watching 12 Years a Slave. Is it on Hulu as well? I thought I saw that it might be. It is. There you go. It's on Hulu as well if you're cheap like me. Is that the cheap option? Is Hulu the cheap option? Well, if you don't want to rent it like you already have a Hulu subscription, I can see how that might not actually uh, make sense. <laughs> I am still just on my parents' Hulu plan. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Cool. So we'll be watching 12 Years of Slave on Hulu. There you go. If you've reached this point in the show, thank you so much for listening. Your support means the world to Christian and myself as we put the show together and throw it out into the world. We hope you enjoyed Unreliable Narrators Month, and we're looking forward to Best Picture winners of, 20, of the 2010s. There are a couple things you can do to support the show. You can leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Helps us reach new listeners there. Or, of course, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Again, helps us grow, helps us reach new listeners, and we can do more awesome stuff in the future as more listeners come. You also feel free to follow us on Twitter and tweet at us there. We're trying to be more active on Twitter. Got to get better about that. That's on me. So we're going to be engaging with the fans there on Twitter. Hopefully we'll throw out some, some polls and things like that to help engage, especially with the Oscars coming up. You can also follow Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where we are rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Lastly, of course, drop us a line at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com, and we'd be happy to read your feedback live on the show, like our good fans Paul Gonzalez and Kate Williams and Braxton Cody before. Thanks to all three of y'all. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening along at home? Uh, tune in to my month. It's going to be great. As always, he's Christian, I'm Scott, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast. <laughs>